Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. All right, welcome to everyone um, for our first time back live in a while. Uh, welcome to everybody at home who's uh, still at home <laughs> from uh, all over. Welcome to class. Um, I'll admit I find it a little challenging to speak to both the people in the room and the people in the Zoom room. Um, but I'll do my best. And um, I did have a couple of, oh shit. For our first time back live in a while. Okay. <laughs> I think it's too loud. Are you too warm? Is that what's happening? Yeah. I know. We could, but I think it'll get real cold and real loud real quick. So we'll leave them shut. What was I saying? Oh, um, I did have a, a couple of months this summer where we did this, where I had people in the room and on Zoom, but it's uh, sort of a new experience. And I think like, uh, like all of us having, or most of us having gotten used to uh, sitting in front of computers alone, uh, I have to admit, I, I didn't like it in the beginning. And I was like, oh, this sucks. And I need humans, especially for teaching the Dharma. It's a transmission. Like we need, I need people to like pull the Dharma out of me. <laughs> I can't do it to a fucking computer. Um, but then I got used to it and I kind of liked it. And I was like, this is awesome. Like I just get to talk to this screen and there's all of these people out there. And um, when class is over, I can just close my computer. It's great. So I'm having a little bit of uh, transition back, as I think all of us are, right? Like on some level, um, transitioning back into the world a little bit. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I uh, was reflecting a lot and, and talking about and teaching um, how... Uh, as you know, like if you already have a meditation practice, if you've been on Buddhist retreats, if you were so fortunate, like that, we know how to do this. We know how to get quiet. We know how to be alone. We, not, not that it's easy or pleasant, but that we have experience. Uh, I know for sure all of my years of practice and all of the silent retreats really prepared me for like, oh, okay, I'm not going out and I'm not seeing people and no physical contact and no eye contact, like all of the same shit we do on retreats. Like, okay, I can do this, but uh, to do it for a year is, <laughs> is a long time. And, um, and coming out of retreats, when we come out of a, uh, a silent retreat, we often give a, a, war a warning of like, you know, be gentle, take it easy. Um, you've been quiet, you've been isolated, you're probably in some level of a altered state that you're not even totally aware of the altered state that you're in. 
And I feel like that actually now. I feel like re-emerging some, slowly re-emerging from uh, a slower, more isolated pace of life um, back to like, okay, now we're here in person and um, and things are, you know, I uh, ate food last night inside a restaurant. <laughs> Now, I know some of you are tuning in from parts of the country where you've been doing that for a while, but in California and especially in Los Angeles, we have not been doing that for, for quite a while. Um, and so just using it all as practice, using it all as mindfulness practice and some, some of it as like compassion practice because I find some of it unpleasant and you know, uh, seeing the attachment to, oh, I sort of got used to the slow, quiet, uh, more uh, private, more isolated, um, and this reemergence into like, okay, now it's time to connect. I know how to do that too. And um, anyways, welcome to the regular Monday night class of Against the Stream. And uh, if you're new, welcome. And if you're not new, welcome. And um, we'll have a period of meditation. I'll give some instructions for the first um, about 30 minutes or so. And then we will have a Dharma talk and some discussion. So find a way to sit that is upright and relaxed. Take your meditation posture, my own opinion is that the posture isn't all that important. You're welcome to sit in a chair or if you're at home on your couch or your bed or wherever you are. Um, the importance is more about the quality of attention that we bring to the body. And there's something really um, important and, and interesting and um, ripe with uh, the potential of insight of stillness. Uh, or at least relative stillness of taking a posture and maintaining it even when you get uncomfortable. Because a lot of what we're learning from the Dharma, a lot of what uh, Buddhism teaches us is how to change our relationship to pain and to develop patience and tolerance and compassion and mercy and forgiveness, all of those qualities. So when you get uncomfortable in meditation, it becomes an opportunity. So we take the posture and we do our best to just stay in it, even when we're uncomfortable. That having been said, if you're pretty new to practice, you don't have to be macho about it. And if you get really uncomfortable and you need to shift a little bit, uh, nobody's going to hit you with a Zen stick around here. It's okay to shift if you need to shift. I can't reach you through the Zoom room to shock you for moving during meditation. Um, so it's okay, but there's something really good about just sitting here being uncomfortable and learning to tolerate it, increasing our tolerance, increasing our ease with discomfort. So find a way to be relatively comfortable to begin with. And when you're ready, Allow your eyes to be closed. Settling into the posture. A 
taking a moment to soften, relax any unnecessary tension around the brow, the eyes, jaw. Feel the breath as it comes and goes, breathing in full breath, breathing out, soften, release tension in the trunk of the body, the shoulders, the sternum, the belly. And reminding yourself why you practice your intention, your aspiration. To become more wise, more compassionate. To see what's causing suffering and to experience some freedom from suffering. And if it's not already part of your practice to bring the intention of kindness and acceptance, I encourage you to include that, the intention to be kind, to meet your own body and heart and mind with warmth, with care, friendliness. This is one of the radical things about the Buddha's teachings that the mind is not very often kind and warm and patient with itself. And so we're training the heart, the mind to be kind, to be tender and friendly towards itself. In our human experience, we experience phenomena. We know the world through the sense doors of seeing and hearing, smelling and tasting. We know our own experience through feelings, sensations, and emotions, as well as thoughts. Mindfulness is inclusive. The Buddha's teaching of present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness. That includes our whole being, nothing 
outside of our conscious attention. But it's good to begin by anchoring the attention with a chosen object using the breath or perhaps sound. Letting everything else recede to the background. As you just pay attention to the sensation that the breath creates. The Buddha first foundation of mindfulness, he begins with the encouragement, breathing in one knows I'm breathing in, breathing out one knows I'm breathing out. No need to control the breath or manipulate your experience. Just receive it. Let the body breathe its own rhythm if you can. Receive the breath coming and going. Giving it your full attention. Letting everything else be in the background. Not stopping the mind. But refraining from indulging in plans and memories, fantasies, hopes, and fears. Choosing to redirect the attention to the present over and over. giving ourselves the gift of our own attention, an act of generosity in itself.
when we find ourselves lost in a plan or a memory, often to some story that the mind is creating about the past or present or future. Just remembering to return, sometimes just saying here, here, now, back to the body, sitting, breathing, sounds arising and passing, and allow the thoughts to arise and pass without getting involved.
having established some level of connection, gathered attention, concentration with the breath, chosen object. The invitation is to begin expanding, becoming more inclusive of your whole body. Awareness of the posture itself, the contact with the cushion, the chair. The second foundation of mindfulness, what's experienced as pleasant in your body in this moment. Even the breath itself, is it experienced, perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? How your hands are resting, your feet on the ground, your ass on the cushion. Our practice becomes a investigation of what's happening moment to moment and how does it feel? Thoughts arising and passing, sounds appearing and dissolving, sensations, sustaining, increasing, decreasing, Rather than meeting the unpleasant thoughts or feelings, sensations, with our habitual reaction of aversion, resistance, we try to soften into, to accept, to meet with kindness, our own pain, the painful thoughts, emotions, sensations, turning towards what is uncomfortable, breathing into it, breathing with it, softening around it.
rather than meeting the pleasant phenomena with a habitual reaction of clinging and craving. Inclining the heart, the mind, to letting go, allowing the impermanent nature of each experience to arise, be known by consciousness and path. Rather than ignoring what the mind is doing, include it. Turn towards your own mind, quality of observing, receiving, unentangled participation with your own thoughts, emotions, unentangled by not being so identified, so attached taking it all so personal. Mindfulness has room for all of our hopes and fears to arise and pass.
Sometimes it's as simple as just letting go of needing this moment to be any different than it is, needing ourselves to be any different than we are, even our mind. That level of accepting the confused, unskillful tendencies in our mind and our heart. We're continuing to encourage, incline to try to be kind, try to be friendly, accepting and forgiving of our own pain, non-attached to our own pleasure. Understanding the impermanent nature of all of this phenomena, so much of it impersonal, not self, not your fault, just thoughts and sensations, arising and passing through awareness. Let it come and let it go as much as you can. Make room for it all.
when you're ready, allowing your eyes to open, your attention to come back to the space. good practice to pause for a moment after we've meditated and reflect, recollect. One of the definitions of mindfulness is recollection, is remembering. Part of the perspective there is that shit is moving so fast you can't actually catch it in the present moment that you're just sort of remembering what just happened. Uh, And that seems to be true. But also actually recollecting on like the last 30 minutes, what happened? You put your attention on your breath or sound on your body. Um, You experienced all of these impermanent phenomena. What happened? Uh, Where did your mind go? How many times in 30 minutes do you have to come back to the present? How many times do we wander off is it a hundred times? Is it a thousand times? Is it every other breath you're lost in a fantasy? Or is there some consistency with like, actually, you know, you reflect on it and see, mostly present. So much important information in uh, about our minds, about our attitudes, about our ability to be kind or compassionate or forgiving or patient or tolerant. Uh, We get each time we meditate, kind of this is where I'm at right now. Not that tolerant today (laughs) in this moment or pretty tolerant or wasn't being that kind to myself. Well, actually, I can see the progress. I'm more kind to my own mind than I used to be. More friendly, more accepting. So I'm going to talk about generosity tonight. Donna, practice of generosity, not just donation, but actual service and giving freely of our time and energy. I'm going to, I'll get into it, but before I do, um, any questions about the meditation instructions from anybody here in the room, how to be, and is it, is it clear? Is, is it any questions about how to navigate this present time, non-judgmental, kind, investigative, all-inclusive, (laughs) non-attached relationship to our own experience. Anybody at home, maybe new or, you know, sometimes you hear this stuff over and over and then it's years into it. You're like, oh, I'm not just supposed to be paying attention to my breath the whole time. (laughs) Oh, I'm actually allowed to reflect and investigate 
what I'm feeling and what the, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant and what emotions are, are present and um, what my mind is doing, what mood is present. Sometimes I think people takes quite a while of, of hearing the instructions before uh, we start to realize, oh, there's more to this than just mindfulness of the breath. So any questions uh, at home, raise your hand in the thing on the, the blue hand button. Um, I have a question here in the room. I'll try to um, repeat it for you at home. Please, what's the comment or question? Yeah. Um, I think the last comment that you speaking was in the UK and it house. I remember observing the birds were chirping really, really loudly, really, really irritating. And I found it was really distracting. And I, I found the noise out here a similar, and it occurred to me as I was sitting here that um, another teaching moment had been sent. Um, but it just felt weird sort of sitting and trying to sort of come back to the breath and finding that distraction and how to sort of find a way to tune it out in a home, it's a lot more controlled. Um, could you guys hear it at home or should I repeat it a bit? I'll repeat it. So uh, I, I love it. The comment was um, having done a retreat with me probably like almost 10 years ago or something over in England and um, being at, and we're, it's like in the English countryside in the South and it's this amazingly, what we would consider quiet meditation center. And uh, they were talking about how uh, they're finding the birds to be so like annoying and distracting. And, you know, she didn't say this, but like, why don't those birds shut the fuck up? I'm trying to meditate. Uh, you ever have that experience where <laughs> you're like, um, and then here being in Venice next to Lincoln Boulevard and uh, having the same experience, but now it's the traffic. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's like, why don't they, why don't they shut the fuck up? <laughs> no, I know you're, you're much nicer than that, uh, than, than I am. But that just that experience of feeling distracted and feeling a little bit annoyed with that um, external experience that's taking away, feels like it's taking us away from the focus being internal. Um, common experience. And I actually love that you had both experiences because I think that so often, especially in, in urban environments, I don't know if, if you have this experience, but I do, where I feel more annoyed by man-made sound than nature sound, as if humans aren't part of nature. <laughs> Right, as if we're some sort of abomination that doesn't belong, right? And how dare people like be making noise? Like people are way more annoying than animals to me. <laughs> or like, uh, I just, I blame them more or something. There's some more, there's more judgment towards uh, humans and especially, you know, like cities and, and but I love the, that, I also had that experience uh, in nature where it feels too loud. The ocean is deafening or the birds are, you know, like just 
so loud and raucous and um, now I know you know this and I, you know and, and uh, we all uh, probably know I just want to remind everybody that there's no such thing as a distraction if you're practicing mindfulness now if you're practicing concentration right the seventh factor of the eightfold path which is mindfulness there is no such thing as a distraction from mindfulness because whatever is happening you can be mindful of the birds the traffic the jackhammers the it, when i lived and taught in new york city i taught on the corner of bleaker and bowery and it's one like half a block from uh houston and it was just uh, you know, horns all of the time. It's just like beep, beep, you know, taxis, you know, and um, just loud, but it's just sound. And it's, it, you know, I, as I admit, like I can feel more annoyed with people honking their horn than I do with the ocean, <laughs> but both are the exact same internal inner eardrum being, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, moved to receive sound. And sound is not a distraction. If our intention, if our practice is to be mindful, mindfulness, and I even said in the beginning of the instructions, choose the breath or choose sound. Use that as your meditation object. Any of the sense doors, any of our experience as what we're meditating with. The arising and passing of the sound of the traffic, the arising and passing of the birds, of the waves, of the snow falling or, you know, raining up at Rachel's house in Seattle again, you know, like always, it's always some, some sound. And so I encourage you and all of us to remember that now, if you really are trying to get concentrated, then we could then, you know, if you really want to go like jhana, you know, the term jhana, like the deep concentration, if that's what we're trying to do, then we could say there's a distraction. Um, if your goal is to get so laser focused on the breath or, you know, where you, you know, go deep into the wormhole of concentration and you experience some protection from the hindrances and some protection from your own mind. And actually your mind might even disappear and your body might dissolve. And it's really fucking cool and psychedelic. And it's not that useful actually to get that concentrated um, without coming back into the mindfulness where you're learning to be at ease in the midst of samsara where it's loud all of the time and uncomfortable a lot of the time. And, and even in nature, it won't shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, much less in the city. Um, so what a great insight to be like, oh, my mind thinks it should be quiet for me. And, and it has some idea, it should be quiet for me to be at peace where our whole practice is I want to be at peace in the midst of the birds and the traffic and the argument I'm having with my partner or whatever is happening. I want to learn to hear and see and smell and taste and touch with 
equanimity, with ease, with non-suffering about the reality that we are embodying, that we are inhabiting. And it's one of the things I fucking love about Buddhism is that it gives us this map of how to live in the world with sirens, with bodies, with nervous systems, <laughs> with a mind and a heart and a And not a kind of, you're going to meditate to a point of bliss, but you're going to embody your own pain with compassion. And you're going to embody your own joy with non-attachment. Like this is the promise of the Dharma. We can learn to not suffer about pleasure or pain. Easier said than done. I know, we all know that. Way easier said than done. But it is the practice. And it's why we have to remind ourselves, I don't need it to be quiet to meditate. I remember the first time I went to Burma and Thailand and India in uh, 1995. And I went and I had this, and I was in my 20s. And I just thought like, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to go meditate with where Ajahn Chah was, and I'm going to go meditate where Mahasi Sayadaw, and you know, I, I, you know, like the lineage. I'm going to go, and it's going to be these peaceful forest monasteries, you know. And then I got to the monastery in Thailand, and it was fucking loud. And I got to the monastery in Burma and they were doing construction, and the trucks were driving by with the loudspeakers and it was fucking loud. And I remember how my mind was blown of like, I had signed up for a fucking peaceful pilgrimage. I could have stayed in Los Angeles for this shit. <laughs> but that's why I love the way you framed it of in that peaceful retreat center, your mind did the same thing. And that you're right, it's not the environment, it's our mind's relationship to the environment. And so we're changing our relationship to our minds. Into our relationship to sound, into our relationship to sensation, to our relationship to taste and smell and thoughts and feelings. So welcome. Good to see you. Any questions, anybody at home about the instruction? I can jump into the... Someone else uh, made a comment in the chat at home saying that, um, that sometimes they find actually the opposite more difficult to meditate with when it's too quiet, right? And there's not the sort of external uh sounds to kind of bring us back and then your mind can really float off or you can kind of feel like oh it's too quiet too quiet this is frightening okay i'll jump into um generosity yeah yeah please in the past i've meditated with my eyes open mm -hmm. In a Zen kind of style or uh, Tibetan, Tibetan Zogchen kind of eyes open. Yeah, well, like, um, uh, like four feet in front of you, you know, eyes gazing down, or like, um, 
can you even where it goes up or you know so i think that um it's a little more difficult when your eyes are closed because you, you i tend to get well i i have dizziness anyway mm -hmm. so i tend to feel um warm too mm -hmm. so um what is that tradition is is there a reason that um the eyes are closed and um how does that help okay um, question about eyes open or eyes closed during meditation, having had experience of meditating with eyes open and um, through like Tibetan practices or some Hindu practices and why, why do we meditate with our eyes closed and how does it help or, or hinder maybe? Um, first, I'll start with saying that like I was saying about sound, Seeing is also always happening. And so uh, it's part of our mindfulness practice because not only are we always seeing, we're always reacting to what we see because everything that reaches the eyeball and is perceived by the mind is perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And often there's liking, disliking, you know, clinging, aversion associated with what our experience of seeing is. So that might be one of the reasons why the Buddha originally said, close your eyes and it'll take away that sense door, right? You, you might still be annoyed by the birds, but at least you won't be, you know, lusting after, you know, what you're seeing or aversive to what you're seeing because it'll be more internal. I do believe that it, it does seem to have been the Buddha's earliest teachings to practice this kind of mindfulness in the formal sense with the eyes closed in order to train the mind to have that level of consciousness that's not drawn outward, there's something about our biology. I don't, I don't know that what the Buddha really said about this, but my own thoughts about it are, there's something about our biology of, you know how we're always looking outside of ourselves for happiness? Like we're not, as human beings, we're not very inwardly, we're very self-centered. <laughs> for sure. And I'm going to talk about that. But we're not very kind of like, I'm just going to look into my own heart for happiness. We're like, sense pleasures, material things. Do I belong? Am I accepted uh, by the, you know, crew? And part of it, I think, is because we have these eyes that like are like, we're looking outside, we're looking for danger. We're looking for, you know, sources of pleasure, sources of threats. So there's something about Stop looking outside, look inside. Look in your own heart, look in your own mind. Feel your breath, feel your body without looking for it out there. Um, there is a place when the, because uh, in the mindfulness instructions, it doesn't say sit down and close your eyes. It just says sit down and bring mindfulness to your body, bring mindfulness to your breath, to the elements, to the parts, to the feeling tones to the mind. But then later in the suttas, in the early teachings, someone asks the Buddha, what should I do when I feel sleepy when I'm meditating? He says, well, then open your eyes. So it's clear that the early practice was close your eyes, go in, bring your attention, your consciousness, not out there, but in here. And you can almost, even with the eyes closed, there's shape, there's color, there's a sense, can you get that sense of like, you can almost see your body form 
like with your eyes closed where you can almost like see, oh, my body's like this. I have a head and shoulders and arms and trunk and legs and That having been said, I will make a, um, so formally in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, we meditate the formal practice with our eyes closed, whether we're trying to get concentrated or develop the four foundations of mindfulness, eyes closed. But in some of the Tibetan practices, some of the Japanese practices, many of the Indian Hindu practices, eyes open. We do eyes open meditation when we're um, not doing the formal training on the cushion, but when we're doing formal walking meditation. Now, the Buddha said four foundations of mindfulness to be practiced in, you know, in the training that we're doing, the development of mindfulness. He said sitting, and when we sit, we close our eyes. But then he said standing, walking, or laying down. Now, standing, you could have eyes open or closed. Um, laying down, you could have eyes open or closed, but walking, you should definitely have your eyes open <laughs> so that you don't walk into something and that you're practicing mindfulness of movement in activities, much like kind of yoga asana practice, where you're bringing that embodied present time awareness to movement. And in our tradition, we do walking meditation by just taking a path and walking back and forth, training ourselves with our eyes open to be present for each movement, each footstep, and what the mind is doing and heart is experienced in that movement. And because ultimately our practice is to be mindful of everything all of the time, everything that we're seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and doing and thinking and feeling and it's good to meditate with your eyes open. It's important to include the world, not as a distraction, but to be mindful of seeing and is it pleasant, unpleasant or neutral? Am I craving for the pleasant things that I'm seeing? Am I aversive to the unpleasant things that I'm seeing? I mean, try this in your daily life when you're walking down the street. Mindfulness of all of the things that your eye comes to and how and, and watch how your mind instantly says i like that i don't like that i like that i don't like that i've seen that shit so many times i don't even see it anymore it's neutral now it's you know like in your neighborhood or where you know the first time you see the flowers you're like amazing and then after a while you just walk past the flowers because <laughs> they're just you're too accustomed to them I encourage you and everybody to find your own way with this stuff and um, sometimes meditate with your eyes closed and explore it for a while and see for yourself. Like do a year or so of like eyes closed practice and see uh, how did it deepen or how did it affect or how did it work to, to do a consistent ongoing eyes closed practice. And then maybe at some point, those of you who've been meditating with your eyes closed for a really long time, try to practice with your eyes open, even on the cushion. That sort of Zen eyes down or the Tibetan eyes down. Or, um, and definitely all of us, whether eyes open or closed on the cushion, be mindful of what you're seeing when you're seeing it. That is our practice. So much of it.
Okay, so I want to talk about, welcome. I want to talk about uh, generosity for a bit. It's the next chapter I'm going through, uh, Heart of the Revolution, uh, and it's the next chapter. It's called Give It Up, The Power of Generosity. So a couple of things. One, the central Buddhist teaching of karma and that we're constantly creating karma. Everything that I've been talking about, even with mindfulness and our relationship to pleasure and the craving, the lust, the attachment that we usually have to, to pleasure, that normal instinctual drive to the pleasant things or the aversive natural reactive tendency that we have to pain. When we uh, you know, are in craving and clinging, we're creating karma. When we're in aversion, we're creating karma. Uh, when we're in self-centered fear, we're creating karma. All, you know, everything. Karma is uh, intentional actions, intentional thoughts, intentional reactions. The unintentional reactions doesn't, don't have so much karma, but the more conscious we become, the more ability we have to be intentional. So in order to purify our karma and, you know, just think of how much selfishness you've been in, in this incarnation, how often you've been thinking about yourself and doing things for yourself. And maybe you've done some lying, maybe you've done some stealing, maybe you've done some manipulating, <laughs> maybe you've, uh... so, all of that karma that we've created through our tendency, just the human tendency, which is not, it's not really your fault. It's, there's no judgment, but human beings are born into this instinctual survival place where we're selfish, we're self-centered. We think about ourselves most of the time. Um, it's not like, it's not because we're bad or sinful or anything. It's just what the human brain does just thinks about ourselves most of the time. And then often those thoughts turn into deeds and speech and the karma that comes with it. So part of generosity is to purify our own karma, getting out of our selfish self-centeredness by learning to think about others, give to others, I mean, in recovery, they, you know, it's really brilliant the way, um, you know, like in 12-step recovery, they, they understood this, you know, that part of the uh, suffering of the alcoholic and the addict was the self-obsession, the self-centeredness and the kind of addiction to our own minds and doing what our minds tell us and our minds are telling us to drink and use and, you know, lie and cheat and steal or whatever your mind is telling us, telling you to do and and for them, this brilliance, which they said, you know, part of the solution has to be a big part of the solution has to be stop thinking about yourself so much and think about how can I help others? How can I be of service? How can I be generous to others? So this is, you know, you know, most of you are well aware of this and practicing it on one level or another in your own life. Now, 
one of my thoughts and and you know there's a i think a little bit of a trap in in the perspective of selfless giving and, and always think about others uh, i was recently i'm doing a, a course and somebody who's been in recovery for a long time said you know i've spent the last 30 something years trying to avoid myself because that's what they told me to do um, and just trying to only think about others and be of service to others. And I realized I've been using it as this avoidance and that I'm kind of coming to the Dharma because it's time to sit with myself. It's time to turn towards and be generous actually towards my own heart, be generous toward, you know, it's, uh, I've given and I've given and I've given as a useful avoidance technique, but at some point it becomes what we talk about as like a, a bypass, an avoidance technique rather than I want to heal. I want to learn to be with my pain. I want to learn to be non-attached to pleasure and not just constantly ignoring and avoiding by thinking, hey, how can I help you? That's sort of like, I'm having a difficult thought. Let me go help somebody. <laughs> like sometimes just have that difficult thought. Just sit with our own pain, be generous, be of service to ourselves. There's that time where the Buddha is asked about loving kindness and this act of um, sending loving kindness to, to others. And he says, you know, remember there's nobody on the planet that's more worthy of your loving kindness than yourself. And I think we can apply that same similarly uh, the flip side of that perspective is that there's nobody on the planet that's less worthy of your kindness <laughs> than yourself. So with the generosity, yes, give, give, give. But remember that you're part of this, that we are part of this, and that we are also worthy of our own generosity. I even you know, framed the meditation. I don't always, but I did a little bit tonight of the mindfulness practice, the attention that we're giving ourselves, we close our eyes, we go inward, the attention we're giving ourselves is an act of generosity. Many people, I don't know how many people had this experience tonight, but many people have the feeling of like, is this selfish? Is it selfish to just pay attention to myself? Is it selfish to purify my karma? Even in generosity, there's different kinds of generosity, um, but because we are purifying our karma, when we're generous, it is good for us. It is creating some merit and some karmic purification for us. Uh, and there's a somewhat common feeling of like, ooh, I need to do this completely selflessly without any concern for my own benefit. Uh, and that's a very advanced state. And if you're there, sometimes beautiful, but don't worry too much about benefiting from, like you deserve it. It's okay to be generous. You deserve to be, to get that karma, to get that merit, to get that goodness that comes from giving. You are a worthy recipient of your own generosity to yourself and your own generosity to others. It's a traditional teaching that 
often when the Buddha was traveling and uh, coming in contact with a new audience, as he did, he traveled around by foot and showed up in the local kind of grove field and said, you know, and kind of set up camp. And then the villagers or the, you know, folks would come and listen and say like, hey, the, you know, Siddhartha's here, let's go listen to a Dharma talk. And people would come and listen to him. And it said that often uh, he would start with teachings on generosity before giving mindfulness teachings, before talking about the four noble truths that, that often his lead teaching was uh, learn to give to each other. In one sutta, it says, uh, when we, if we truly understood the importance of generosity, we would never let a single meal go by where we didn't share some of our food with someone else who was hungry. And that, that we would just make that a part of our practice is every day sharing our food, our resources, our time, our energy. Not, you know, I, I want to say like for sure in a balanced way, as I already pointed to, there is a such thing as too much of giving beyond your means and giving as a avoidance kind of, but a balanced way of sharing some food. And that also um, generosity, the merit, the goodness that we experience, whether you call it karma or merit, is not based on, it's always based on intention. And so it's not based on like how big of a gift you give. Like, for instance, tonight, you're going to leave a donation for class. And uh, hopefully you're going to leave a donation to class. You're going to be asked to leave a donation. And that, the, the, that generosity isn't depend on how much you give. You know, like there could be somebody who has a lot of money and says, I'm going to give a hundred bucks tonight. Uh, and there could be somebody who, and they'd get whatever karma from that hundred dollar donation. And then there could be somebody who has very little money who says, you know, I'm pretty broke, just barely paying the rent, but I'm going to give two bucks. I can afford, you know, and that the karma would be the same from a hundred dollar donation or a $2 donation, because it's based on our sincere intention and our uh, means, right? So it's not like the wealthy people get all, you know, the philanthropists that are, you know, Bill Gates is giving away millions of his billions <laughs> is not, you know, getting necessarily more karma than you giving 10 bucks from your means, right? Because it's all relative. Actually, if you start to really look at how little the billionaires give away of what they have, and, and then kind of looking at often uh, working class people uh, are way more generous when it comes, you know, percentage of our income, you know, where it's like, I'm going to give 10%, what is it, tithing, right? Which is like, I'm going to give 10% of my income to worthy charitable causes, you know? Um, and, you know, most, most people don't actually give 10%. So, Generosity is important <laughs> and there's different forms of generosity. There's uh, where the Buddha talked about four forms. He said, there's the kind of generosity where you give something that you don't, that you have, but you're not very attached to. 
it's sort of easy, you know, like cleaning out your closet. Do you know you guys ready to do some spring cleaning? You're gonna do the Marie Kondo kind of, does it spark joy? And then you're gonna take all of that shit that doesn't spark joy in your spring cleaning. And it's like, please take this shit off my hands. And it's easy to give and it's, they're actually doing you a favor, <laughs> right? It's still an act of generosity. I mean, don't put it in the garbage, take it to the, you know, wherever you donate the stuff, give it to someone in need. And there's a little bit of merit in that. And then there's the kind of giving where you have something that, you know, you're kind of, you, like with your money, like you kind of want to keep all of your money, right? <laughs> kind of, kind of like, I kind of want to keep all of it, but I'm going to give some of it. I'm going to share some of it with others, with worthy. I'm going to share some with the Dharma Center. I'm going to share some with people who are, I feel worthy of, of giving and that, but it's, you know, it's not super easy, right? There is that feeling of, this isn't cleaning up my closet. This is, you know, my bank account and I, I want to keep it. Um, and then there's that kind of giving where, uh, and we have to be careful with this, where it hurts a little bit, where it's like, actually, I really, really wanted to keep this, where I'm going to give it away. Um, so be careful with your finances. Don't give, don't give away money that you need to pay your own bills. But um, I heard that there's a, some of my friends that do some Native American Red Road practice, that there's a practice called the, um, the giveaway where you have to bring stuff that you want to keep and give it away. You're not allowed to clean out your closet and the shit you don't want. You're going to kind of collect some of your prize stuff and bring it and, and share it with the community, stuff that you would really like to keep. And think about that. Like, do you do that in your life? Would that be interesting to do? You guys know the white elephant um, gift exchange thing where everybody, you, you have a gathering and everybody has to bring a gift. And then you pick numbers and you get to open a gift. And, uh, and then if somebody else after you picks a number, they can take it from you. It's, it's a quite a fun exercise in attachment and craving and loss and grief. Because you open that thing and you're like, oh, I really want this. Or you take somebody else's thing and you're like, oh, I really want this. A few years ago on my birthday, I invited a handful of close friends. And I said, okay, I want to do this. It's my birthday and I want to do this white elephant. But I want you to bring something that you don't want to give away. Something that is important to you. And don't go buy something. Something that you own and that you cherish. And I know I'm kind of a jerk, like it's my birthday. And I'm like, and I'm, and I'm not even asking them to give it to me. I'm asking like, bring it in. Like a stranger might get this thing that you fucking cherish. To be honest, people really kind of called it in. You know, but it was interesting too, because like one person brought something that several people brought stuff that really were important to them, but nobody else wanted. <laughs> Right. And so that's a, that's an interesting thing of like, well, this is, this is a mixtape from 87, you know, like this was my first punk rock mixtape and I'm so fucking attached to it and I'm offering it. And everybody else is like, I have all of that, right. You know, like, I don't need your mixtape from 87. Um, 
somebody brought like a collectible sex pistols, like original sex pistols uh, postcard from 76 or 77, you know? And I was like, okay, great. But it was a fucking postcard from the seventies <laughs> that you could probably get a repo from, you know, unless you're really like a collector from the pistols. It didn't mean much to people. So the, what was I hoping for? I was just, it's really, I did this as an, just an experiment just to see the what? Yeah, the postcard. I, I might have ended up with it, actually. Actually, some a couple people that were there to this day still talk about what they got and then got taken from them, mm -hmm. right? Because it's that, you know, it can, it can be stolen a couple of times. And um, I really, you know, a friend, my friend the other day was like, I'm still like, I want that necklace. And you let someone else take that necklace. So just for your reflection, the importance of, of giving, of generosity, and you know how radical it is that the Buddha set up this whole tradition saying, you can't charge for this shit. The Dharma has to be freely offered. Uh, and one of the rules for Dharma teachers is that if you're not allowed to teach with the motivation to make money. You have to always check that your motivation as a Dharma teacher is to give. That I'm actually, that the Dharma teacher's job is to be generous and say, I wanna share. I'm open to your being generous back. But the, and of course this was set up for the monks. So it's easier for the monks, right? Who have no real needs, right? Just lunch, just feed us lunch. <laughs> It's a whole different scene for, you know, Western householder, people with mortgages and, you know, children to send to school. Um, but it's so cool and so radical. And actually, it works pretty well. I mean, I'm, I've been uh, somewhat well supported as somebody who charges for almost nothing, especially the drop in classes by donation for over 20 years, meditation center bills being paid from the generosity of the people who come. We don't charge at the door, we never have. You know, the only thing we charge for is like the cost of a retreat, just because that costs us money. Um, so I think it's so cool and so radical to be a bit outside of the capitalist fee for service model and saying like, we're here to share the Dharma. And if you appreciate it, please support it, right? Please practice generosity. It'll support the Dharma and it'll also help you break free from some of that clinging <laughs> that causes us all so much suffering. Um, so some of my thoughts about generosity, I'd love to open it to your questions, your comments. Uh, there's so much more we could say about it, but I'd love to have some dialogue. Richard, jump in, unmute. Great, thank you, Noah. Thanks for the great talk and great meditation. So I have questions about merit. What is merit? What, where does it come from? Can it be accumulated? What do you do with it? And um, there's, I don't know, it sort of feels like it's like Bitcoin or something. I mean, like, I'm not quite sure what merit is. And then at the end of like, say refuge meetings, for instance, we, uh, we uh, offer the, the merit, we, we give it away. So what, what is merit? Um, do you have the same feeling or question about karma? 
they're, well, obviously they're related. So I don't have as much question about karma as I do about merit. I was, you know, I was raised in the Catholic church and they have this whole thing about indulgences. It kind of made Martin Luther crazy, you know, and then it's, you know, you collect indulgences and then you don't go to hell. So what's that? What is that? Right. <laughs> the way I think about merit, you guys could hear the question, right? Um, the way I think about merit is basically it's karmic uh, accumulation. It's the same. It's the same kind of thing. And you've heard my oversimplified karma savings and loan, and that positive actions are are um, deposits in the karma savings and loan uh, account. Um, and that you know the more like it, it's merit, the karma that we create. There's a, a abundance. And that you can choose, it is thought in, in Buddhism and both in the Theravada and Mahayana, Vajrayana, that you can also share, share this. And it's a little mystical or something. But the way that I think the, about the offering of it is just that another act of gener whether you're actually able to really share your karma with someone else. I, technically, like the equanimity teaching says, everyone is the heir to their own karma. And everyone's happiness or, or unhappiness will depend upon their karmic actions, not our wishes for them. We could say also not our sharing our merit with them. But because it's easy to get attached to even our spiritual practice, there's something so cool, I think, about practicing and then at the end of practice saying, like, I don't need, I'm going to share this. I'm going to share in the way that it's usually said in Theravada is I'm going to share the blessings, but it's the mm -hmm. same thing. May, may I be a blessing. May I share the blessings of my practice of my life's, life's energy uh, with all beings. And it's that practice at the end of the refuge meeting or at the end of the meditation class of saying like generosity, we don't have to cling to our uh, development here. Let's share it. Let's remember for the benefit of all beings, I'm trying to wake up. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet, constantly reminding ourselves that we're together, that we're doing something uh, collectively that is good for us, but is also to be of service to create a positive change for others. So I don't know if I answered your question, fully of what merit is, but it's something like karma. So that's a good answer though. I appreciate it. So does merit have to do with like the accumulation of positive, or I don't know if there is such positive merit would lead to good karma, which would lead to a better life here and maybe even hereafter. And then the opposite with negative karma. Yes. And there's a problem here because and I go into it a little bit in the chapter and in, in the book um, of what has happened in Buddhist countries is they've taken this merit making as a replacement for wisdom development. And you'll see this a lot where you'll go to temples and, and monasteries and there'll be all of this giving, giving, giving and not much meditation. <laughs> and... Um, and actually, if you ask a lot of kind of traditional Buddhists, they'll say like, we're giving for a better rebirth mm -hmm. rather than what the Buddha actually taught, which is like, yes, be generous all of the time as much as you can, 
but develop wisdom and compassion so that you can get free in this lifetime from the causes of suffering. And um, the unfortunate state of Buddhism in in a a degraded state that where only like 10% of Buddhists actually meditate. And then this really interesting thing that's happening where there's all of these people in the around the world, but especially in the West, who aren't even Buddhists, who are meditating their asses off, right? <laughs> now, maybe they're not fully developing the four foundations and the Brahma Viharas in the way that the Buddha encouraged, but everybody's on that fucking app getting their 10 minutes of meditation, you know, <laughs> which is great. Millions of people at least opening the door, starting to, Uh, And, you know, some percentage of those non-Buddhists who are meditating uh, are going to get serious about their practice at Mm -hmm. some point, some percentage. Mm -hmm. Hope that helps. That helps. Thanks. Any other thoughts, please? And remind me your name. Kabuki. Kabuki, nice to see you. Um, I've observed living become a negative addiction um, in, in that I've seen people give to a detriment and almost have a running calculator, not fiscally, but that I've done all these things and almost expecting it back. And that becomes its own negative outcome. Yeah. In of itself. Yeah. And it's, it's tricky to how to engage with someone who's in, in that loop to help them disengage from it. Yeah. And bring it just back to what is your intention of living? Yeah. Um, and doing it not because you're expecting something else. Right. I mean, I, I love that. I'll, I'll repeat it a little bit of, um, She's saying that, you know, witnessing people that kind of get into a negative place where they're giving, but there's so much expectation. And then there's so much suffering when there's a lot of expectation and, hey, I gave to you, like, and of course in relationships, there should be some reciprocal, but when you, especially when you start to wake up to, oh, there's not a lot of reciprocal here, but you keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting like, well, maybe if I give more, they'll finally return it. Uh, and then, you know, it's the codependent, it's the enabling, it's the, um, and it's incredibly common. And it is hard to talk somebody out of that. It's hard to talk people out of any kind of delusions. Um, but of course, the teaching is to, uh, you know, give openly give without a lot of expectation of return, give for the sake of giving and for the goodness that it does for you. I've more than once um, encouraged people not to give. I've had people come like to me or who I could tell that they wanted to give because uh, they felt like that would be a way that they'd been accepted in the community or that it would sort of buy them. Maybe it was what Richard was saying, the sort of indulgences. And I could tell that it was coming from a place where they thought they needed to give to be 
loved. And I've more than once encouraged people at my own detriment to say, you know what, don't give. Like, this will be better for you to be here and not give. This will be better for you to practice receiving. You're, pra- you're good at giving. How about receiving? And, you know, so that's one of the practices to give to people who are always giving, giving, giving and saying like, actually, your spiritual discipline is to receive, is to accept. Okay, I think that that's probably enough for tonight. We're at about time. Good to see everybody. Thanks for coming uh, on Zoom. Although the meditation center is now open and if you're local, you're welcome to come down. If you're uh, interested in coming down, people are masked up. I'm not because I'm speaking. Um, the center is super clean and dis- you know sanitized, all that stuff. So it feels like a safe place and there's only about 10 people in the room. There's plenty of space to come and social distance if you want to come practice. I will continue to do Zoom um, for all of you who aren't local or the people who are local who aren't ready to be in person and we'll do, I'll do both probably forever, but we'll see. <laughs> but we'll see. Um, please uh, offer a donation. The link online uh, is there in the chat. Suggested donation is $15. Everybody's welcome to be here regardless of ability to give. If you're here and you have cash, you can put it in the begging bowl over there. Um, Or you could just maybe Venmo if you don't have cash and you'd like to do it. The Venmo's written down on the desk over there. And I also have a bunch of merch. I set up a store here at Against the Stream. So I've got hats and t-shirts and sweatshirts, all the stuff that's available on the Against the Stream website you can get here in person. And as it is our practice to be generous with our energy, time, many goodness that may have been developed through our practice and discussion of the Buddha's Dharma, be shared outward in all directions with all beings. May each one of us awaken in this lifetime and together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.